Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. There's another English word that would serve us well in trying to conceptualize the Council's intent, spirituality. Unfortunately, that's another term that wasn't around until about 50 years ago. It, too, has been used and misused in so many ways that it has about as much latitude as the word we knew. Briefly, we can say this. Both culture and spirituality deal with the same aspects in the case of an individual or of society as a whole. What are these aspects? You guessed it. Identity, purpose, perspective, relevance, and relationships. All of which are comprised of values, principles, and truths, attitudes and points of view, goals and priorities, accepted ways of doing things, the stuff of life that enables a person to find fulfillment and meaning and provide society with the traditions, conventions, customs, laws, institutions, and so forth that enable a people to live together in relative harmony while preserving individual rights and promoting the well-being of all. In short, Vatican II was calling for a cultural revolution within the hearts of individual Catholics as well as within the church. Now, not as an institution, but as the people of God. Here's the way this issue is presented in evangelization in the modern world. Quote, the split between the gospel and culture is without doubt the drama of our times, just as it was of other times. Therefore, every effort must be made to ensure a full evangelization of culture, or more correctly, of cultures. They have to be regenerated by an encounter with the gospel. But that encounter will not take place if the gospel is not proclaimed. Now, the working of culture is described in the following way. For the church, evangelizing means bringing the good news into all the strata of humanity. Now I am making the whole of creation new. But there is to be no humanity if there are not first new persons, renewed by baptism and by lives lived according to the gospel. Here's where we come to the heart of the matter. To again quote, the purpose of evangelization is therefore precisely this interior change. And if it had to be expressed in one sentence, the best way of stating it would be to say that the church evangelizes when she seeks to convert solely through the power of the message she proclaims, both the personal and collective consciences of people, the activities in which they engage, and the lives in the concrete milieu which are theirs. How this happens is described in the next paragraph referring to the strata of humanity which are to be transformed. For the church... It is a question not only of preaching the gospel in ever wider geographic areas or to ever greater numbers of people, but also of affecting, as it were, upsetting to the power of the gospel mankind's criteria of judgment, determining values, points of interest, lines of thought, sources of inspiration, and models of life 
which are in contrast to the word of God and the plan of salvation. Now, if you look at our culture today, just look at it and you say, hey, does that really reflect uh, what God had in mind? Father Alfred Delp, the, the, the Jesuit priest that was murdered by the Nazis just before the end of World War II, put it this way, the traces of God are becoming increasingly indistinct in humanity. And that really sums up how the gospel is supposed to challenge, upset mankind's criteria of judgment, values, perspectives, lines of thought, attitudes, life models. Who, who's our role models today? All of that is culture. Maybe an easier way to understand the dynamic of culture is see that it, it's what authorizes human life, human behavior, especially one's religion or the lack thereof. That's the key. Religion is, a, is, a, is a really the, the heart of the matter. In fact, the word culture comes from the Latin cultus, and cultus in Latin means religion, where we get the word cult in English. But culture is Essentially, your identity and your purpose, as is spirituality, the why, the motivation you have for doing whatever you do. Now, there are two things you have to keep in mind in regard to culture. One, it is created by a plurality, not by isolated individuals. So if the church wants us to transform culture, you can't do it by individuals. You have to come together. And two, it needs a place to happen. Culture needs a place to happen because... It is shaped by people who form relationships in the very process of sharing values, goals, truths, and so forth. Without a time and a place for sharing, there is no culture. And life pretty much comes down to every man for himself. Why we don't have a lot of cultured young people today can largely be traced back to family, the breakdown of family, because culture needs a place to happen. And it is shaped and formed, not by individuals, but by people working in consort. Now, we could spend a lot of time on culture, but we have to take a look at the other two forms of evangelization envisioned by Vatican II, both of which were treated in specific documents of their own. In the Council's Decree on Ecumenism, we read that the restoration of unity among all Christians is one of the principal concerns of the Second Vatican Council. Ecumenism, a principal concern of the Second Vatican Council. Here are several brief quotes from that document. The Lord of Ages, in recent times, has begun to bestow more generously upon divided Christians remorse over their divisions and an increased longing for unity. Everywhere, large numbers have felt the impulse of this grace. And among our separated brethren, there also increases from day to day a movement fostered by the grace of the Holy Spirit for the restoration of unity among all Christians. Taking part in this movement, which is called ecumenical, are those who invoke the triune God and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. They do this not merely as individuals, but also as members of the corporate groups in which they have heard the gospel and which each regards as his church and indeed God. Now, in terms of a follow-up, at least in my experience, ecumenism as a major purpose of the council 
hasn't fared very well. There are two reasons for this. One having to do with the what, the other with the why. Here again, we're dealing with perspective and purpose. Ecumenism is not a form of barroom brotherhood, where differences are sort of floated away, if you know what I mean. Nor is it an attempt to question another person's beliefs or to conceal one's own. For Catholics, in the word of Pope John Paul II, ecumenism is a graced response to God's universal call to holiness. Remember I mentioned, keep that in mind. The universal call to holiness obliges us to be ecumenical. This universal call to holiness means living one's faith in the fullness of the gospel message, giving neither offense nor scandal to anyone, being ready and able to enter into fruitful dialogue with fellow Christians, and being committed to work and to pray for the unification of Christendom. In short, ecumenism isn't about trying to make a Protestant into a Catholic. It's about making oneself into a better Catholic. It doesn't mean acting on others. It means acting on oneself, shaping ourselves in the image of Christ so that we can be Christ in the world today. The why behind ecumenism is simply the law of charity. But it has the added dimension that has to do with primary evangelization, the third thing I want to mention. Turning again to the introduction to the decree on ecumenism, we read this, quote, certainly such division openly contradicts the will of Christ, scandalizes the world, and damages that most holy cause, the preaching of the gospel to every creature. That is then the third form of evangelization, and it's described or defined in the council decree on the missionary activity of the church in Latin called ad gentes, going to the nations. This, uh, this document has received maybe a little more attention than ecumenism, not much, but a little more perhaps because it's related to third world development and because it is still a major concern among many religious congregations. In the aftermath of the council, and in part due to the way people interpreted the documents on religious freedom and ecumenism, there was a lot of ambiguity, not only in regard to how primary evangelization was to be carried out, but even as to whether or not it deserved attention in the first place. The question is better understood not in terms of whether pagans can be saved without access to the good news, but whether we can be saved for want of charity. If we make no effort to share the good news, we have reason to doubt the depth or breadth of our charity. Here is where we can see the connection between renewal, ecumenism, and primary evangelization. As Pope Paul VI put it, the person who has been evangelized goes on to evangelize others. Here lies the test of truth, the touchstone of evangelization. It is unthinkable that a person should accept the word and give himself to the kingdom without becoming a person who bears witness to it and proclaims it in his turn. This is something on the order of a paradox, but we come to, into a true possession of our faith only in the act of trying to share it with others. That's an interesting thing. You know, a lot of times, you know, you come, if you have to teach somebody something, that's when you come really to understand it yourself. The very attempt of sharing our faith makes us more aware of what we believe and why we believe it. 
We could go on for years and years living just as cultural Christians, just going to church because it's a thing to do. But if we try to share our faith, then we come to a deeper understanding and acceptance of it. This uh, attempt requires us to grow in all the virtues needed to live and share the good news of God's love. And the other thing about this is that if we do not have a genuine interest in primary evangelization, we're compromising our own faith. So in summary, primary evangelization validates renewal and gives impetus to ecumenism. In other words, if you have renewal but you don't have primary evangelization and ecumenism, you don't have renewal. Primary evangelization is both a cause and an accurate measure of the church's vitality. Where there is a lively uh, missionary enterprise, missionary effort, that's where you find the church is really vital. Taken together, these three kinds of evangelization are like a three-legged stool. If you have a three-legged stool, you need all three legs if it's going to stand up. All three are needed if the church locally and universally is to fulfill the commission that Jesus gave to us, go into the nations and make all people my disciples. When renewal, ecumenism, and missionary enterprise are all three present, they will reflect a thoroughly Christian culture characterized by a spirit of reconciliation, compassion, and concern. Not only by the local church, but by the universal church. In combination, the three works of evangelization comprise a vital culture of compassion and concern. They represent the norm expected of us. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. They are the fulfillment of Christ's prayer. I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through this word, through their word so that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. But how was that purpose of Vatican II really to be fulfilled or realized? Through the laity. That's why many uh, authors who really know what they're talking about describe Vatican II as the council of the Holy Spirit and the laity, Vatican II meant to mobilize all Christians into this task of bringing the gospel, the good news, God's love and truth into the world. And it cannot be done without the laity. You know, when, when I, I think it was in like 1980, I remember reading statistics that said uh, the laity represent 98% of the church. <laughs> Guess what? Today, the laity represent 99% of the church. <laughs> So there's a little bit of a falling off there in the religious and, and priests. But this is what Vatican II was. I, I hope I give you some understanding of it, not what a lot of people have misrepresented it to be. And I can tell you this, that where Vatican II is being followed, the church is vital and alive. Because it has to be. If we are totally converted within our, our own hearts and come to really accept Jesus as the Son of God and our Savior, who tells us, share the good news, well, that's going to bring us alive. But if we get caught up in all the controversy and all the conflict that came along, 
in the wake of Vatican II, we will not have that kind of vitality. Next week, I will deal with all the conflict and all the problems and why Vatican II actually, in our country, I think you'd have to say it ended up as a train wreck instead of what I'm talking about here, all this, this beautiful design, identity, purpose, perspective, relevance, relationships, church. The people of God called to share God's truth and love with people everywhere. Thank you very much, and see you next week. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. The Quill family decided to start a new life, a life of missionary service. Mother and father and their two young children made a two-year commitment to live, work, and pray in Honduras. There they would help provide care to some 100 orphans. Both adults had long dreamed of being missionaries, and this, they said, was where God was calling them to serve. How will you serve the Lord today? In all we do, even in the little things, we should reveal His love and joyfully proclaim His message of salvation. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family and mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio Presents. We uh, introduced this series by looking at church history from the fall of the Roman Empire into the Renaissance up to the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, ending with the pontificate of Pope Pius IX, the last pope to head the temporal empire of the church. As we have seen, this marked the end of a rather or particularly tumultuous time in the life of the church. For example, Pius VI had succumbed to death while a virtual prisoner of the French government. Pius VII was kidnapped by one of Napoleon's generals. And when Pius VII was crowned, the, the uh, tiara, the papal tiara, was made out of paper mache because <laughs> the French had stolen the original. <laughs> so uh, Pius the, uh, well, actually, Pius VII was held captive until liberated by the British after the Battle of Waterloo. Pius IX was elected in 1846. He had to flee from Rome in disguise in 1848. I think they had uh, cannons aimed at his uh, bedroom. And he was returned to the Vatican in 1850, guarded by a French expeditionary force. At his death, as I mentioned, the French editorial writers in France gleefully predicted that the cardinals would not come together to elect another pope, and at last... This outmoded institution was dead, and we can get on with human progress. That was the sentiment. But the cardinals did gather, and they elected Leo XIII, who, incidentally, <laughs> contemplated fleeing Rome also when uh, an angry crowd attacked the funeral procession of Pius IX with the intent of throwing his corpse into the Tiber River. So uh, things were not all that good at that time. The church's uh, future really held little promise. However, beginning with the reign of Leo XIII, 
the church was transformed. It's an uninterrupted line of very brilliant popes. The church, instead of being an insecure and insignificant European nation, became a fully competent moral and spiritual leader with an influence that reached right around the globe. We, uh, in that, uh, I think the second talk, we also mentioned this peculiar three-cornered alliance against the church comprised of political and religious reformers and a new breed of scientists who uh, sought to replace philosophy and theology with the scientific method. Now, we usually see that as uh, just against the church. But Christopher Dawson gives a, a really good uh, explanation of how this all occurred, this whole idea of trying to make science uh, displace both philosophy and theology. And that's why, incidentally, all the arts and science and philosophy, you don't have those in school anymore. You know, they're gone. In the Middle Ages, that was the essence of your education. So, anyhow, we, one thing we didn't mention was the development of modern thought, except to say that uh, it often occasioned and also formed the background to all the encyclicals that the popes were writing at that time. And that's how you can say it was providential in a sense because that's the way we developed our faith by the time we came to Vatican II. The... Uh, Again, incidentally, I got a lot of incidentallys here, don't I? But uh, the, you know, the popularity and the timeliness of Bishop Sheen's television shows, they were largely due to his familiarity with European thought and with the papal encyclicals that methodically exposed its flaws. So by way of introduction to this part three of our series, we want to take a moment to list some of the principles who originally or initially had a hand in developing modern thought. Why is this important? Well, if we are to get a proper perspective on what happened during and after the Second Vatican Council, we have to understand modern thought. We begin with a guy named John Locke, who was born in 1632, and he died in 1704. He was an English philosopher who rejected metaphysics. Already, see, we're starting to kick philosophy out. And he embraced a utilitarian outlook on life. This is called empiricism. You know, if it works, uh, you know, that's, that's all you got to figure. So he, he also had the conclusion, and he, he, was, he figured in some of our, you know, the way we shaped our, our concept of government. He said, good government should protect the individual from being subject to the inconstant, uncertain, and arbitrary will of another man. We have uh, two guys you probably know, uh, Voltaire and uh, Rousseau. Voltaire was born in 1694. He died in 1778. Rousseau was born in 1712, and he also died in 1778. I think the good Lord called them both home and said, you've done enough. <laughs> they were popular writers who stirred the imagination and the emotions of their readers. In general, they deplored the status quo, and they advocated societal and political revolution against, quote, the detestable existence of a persecuted no, a persecuting and privileged orthodoxy that effectively deprived people of freedom by usurping an individual's rights to make a decision. Ho, ho. Uh, Voltaire's alleged desire was to see the last king strangled by the entrails of the last priest. <laughs> that was his fervent wish. He was a nice guy. <laughs> Around this time, if memory serves, there was an Anglican bishop. I'm not sure this, uh, I, you know, it's a long time since I had this... Uh, philosophy thing, but I think it was George Berkeley, and he was the guy, he was an Anglican bishop, and he began promoting subjectivism 
and skepticism. Now, you might think, well, wow, what's he doing that for? Well, it, it wasn't, uh, he didn't advocate, you know, this going into doubt as the end of the journey. He saw it more or less as a necessary means for arriving at a place worthy of having been attained. In other words, if your faith doesn't cost anything, you don't have to think, well, it's not worth much. The problem is he didn't explain how you'd know when you got there. Because if everything is subjectivism and skepticism, you don't have a foundation in which to know where you are going. So, but he started that. Then we have a guy named David Hume. I'll give you dates again, 1711 to 1776. He developed skepticism, uh, uh, subjectivism rather, into relativism. So if you just have uh, subjectivism, you don't have much of a basis in reality to justify it. So what he did was, he, he said, well, no, it's relativism. And what he did was he also reduced morality to a matter of public utility, which is, again, utilitarian empiricism. Now, we jump ahead just a couple of decades, and we come to John Stuart Mill, 1806 to 1853. He followed in the footsteps of his father, James Mill, in the fields of philosophy and economics. He also advocated social evolution and, where necessary, revolution. Auguste Comte, 1798 to 1857, he was a French philosopher. These other guys were French and English, and this guy was French. And he is often regarded as the originator of what we call secular humanism. He represented humanity collectively, past, present, and future, as God. That was what God was. Humanity. So we become God, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn says so well. The denial of God is an axiomatic deification of, of us, of man. We should mention also Charles Darwin, who developed the theory on organic evolution of the species on the basis of natural selection and a struggle to survive. They tell a little story about some modern scientist was, uh, you know, after they had figured all about all this stuff, and he was, he told this. Uh, uh, I guess it was a Monsignor or something, that he, he knew how to make a man, you know. So the Monsignor said, well, that's pretty, wow. Uh, I, I, do you think, uh, what about if I ask God if that's okay? So he says, sure, go ahead. So he says, God, you know, this is a problem. Will you come down here? And, so God, yes, my son, you know. So the, the uh, Monsignor says, okay. He says, uh, I'll go. The, 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 the guy, the scientist, he goes and he grabs a handful of dirt. God says, wait a minute. He says, get your own dirt. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.